to see all of you. Hey, grab your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Genesis, the first chapter, and we'll be reading there shortly. That'll be our text for this morning. The month of February is, uh, has a very special holiday in it. That's for all you husbands. <laughs> Valentine's Day, right? And, um, but you know, Valentine's Day kind of specifically focuses on romantic relationships, but it's a, it's a good month to focus on relationships in general. And so today we are beginning a um, new series we are creatively calling the Relationship Series. And it's not going to be dealing with uh, just romantic relationships. So you single people, there will be something in here for you as well. And so, uh, so we're looking forward to that. This morning will be my first message in that series. In the first message of a series, I kind of like to give an introduction to where we'll be heading in this series. And so I'll be doing that this morning. In this morning's messages, in this message, I, I want to teach you four things. I want to bring four things out specifically in this message. First thing is that I want us to learn and to understand that God is the author of relationship. It wasn't our idea, it was his right? And the second thing I want to bring out in this message this morning is that there are what I consider to be two types of relationships. There's first of all, the vertical relationship, which is the most important. That's our relationship with our creator. But secondly, there's horizontal relationships that's with those around us. And so we'll be looking at those two different type of relationships. Third thing that I want to show you is that, um, and we'll see this in the book of Genesis, as we're, we're studying, is that there's an enemy to relationships because there's an enemy to God and that the enemy wants to come steal, kill, and destroy the relationships that you and I have, not only vertically, but horizontally. So we'll be talking about that. And then fourthly, along the way, as we're going through this message, I may pull out some side points, some just things that I think we need to talk about, even though they don't directly deal with relationships. So that's where we're heading this morning. Let's pray before we look into the word. Are you ready? Would you just bow your hearts before the Lord? Father, we again, thank you for the opportunity to hear from you. We're about to look into your word. I thank you that your word is living and active. I give it permission to be living and active in me this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you do what you do and bring revelation to our heart, illuminate the word so that it's not only words on a paper, but it is truly what it is, the living word of God. May it be so today in Jesus name. And everybody said passionately. Genesis chapter one, we're gonna begin in verse 26. The word of God reads this way. Then God said, let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. I believe according to that, we're in charge of the animals. Amen. All the hunters in the house say amen. You ever done that? I have. Sit in the stand. I command the biggest buck in the woods. I digress, I'm sorry. Verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. 
In the first book of Genesis, we see the creation account. We see that this is when God created all that we experience here. The first five days, he created the world and the animals and things around us. On the sixth day, he created me and you. He created, he created man. And then on the seventh day, of course, he entered into the Sabbath rest. And so we see the, the creation account in Genesis chapter one. When we get to Genesis chapter two, what we see, now it, it's important to note that in Genesis one, where he talks to us about the creation of man, he just gives us a quick overview of the creation of man, okay? So in Genesis chapter one, it's a quick overview of the creation of man. When we go into chapter two, what we see is a detailed account. So if you're not careful, you'll read and you'll see that maybe you think that there's two creations of man, one in Genesis one, one in Genesis two. It's not so. There was one creation. Genesis one just gives us an overview. Genesis two gives us a more detailed account. But in the first three chapters, of Genesis, we, we see this, this story unfolding. What we find is that God created Adam. He created man. And he created man very differently than he created everything else. Everything else he, he spoke into existence. With man, he got his hands dirty. And he's been getting his hands dirty ever since with us, right? He, he actually formed us of the dust of the ground. And then he breathed into us the breath of life. He actually, he created us in his image. Then he departed his image into us. It's beautiful. So man is very much different than all else that he created. So we see that, that God created man. But not only did he create him, he placed him in the garden. So he, puts, he gives man an environment. He puts him there in this garden. Secondly, he gives him a job description. He says, okay, Adam, what you're to do, I love the way that it says it there in verse 28, as we just read. He said, you're to fill the earth and to govern it. So our job is to fill the earth and government, govern it. You'll see that other places he said, be fruitful and multiply. That kind of falls under the fill it category. And then he says, has dominion, have dominion, which kind of falls underneath the, the government um, a picture there. So he created man, put him in a garden, gave him a job description. He also gave man some boundaries. There was one boundary that he gave man. He said, okay, of all the trees of the garden, you can eat of it. Now we're talking about relationships. So I'm going to get there in a second. He says, of all the trees in the garden, you can eat of it, but there's, there's, there's one tree that you're not to eat of. And it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's in the center of the garden along with the tree of life, but you're not to touch, you're not to eat, I'm sorry. You're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, you know, is interesting to me because especially in today's culture, it, there tends to be this idea that love doesn't put boundaries in place. But I want you to know that, that love places boundaries. I have some grandchildren that I dearly love. And when they're at my house, there's boundaries at Papa's house. Like the pond is there to look at, but when you're two, the pond is not to be messed with. Stay away from the pond, right? And so there were boundaries. God put boundaries around man, but God never puts boundaries arbitrarily. The reason he put a boundary there is because he said, if, if you do, if you do disobey me and you eat of this tree, you're going to die. 
So the boundaries weren't arbitrary. It wasn't that God was trying to be some kind of cosmic buzzkill. He put these boundaries up because he was trying to protect us because of his love for mankind. He put boundaries around him. So we, we see this happen. Day six, this, this half, half of day six, this is what happens. So he creates man, puts him in a garden, puts boundaries up. And, you know, for the first five days of creation, we see that everything he created, he'd step back and he'd say, now that's good. Whatever he created, he'd step back and go, that's good if I do say so myself. But halfway through day six, when he created man, after, after having created Adam, for the first time, he didn't say, this is good. In fact, he said the opposite. He said, this is not good. About his own handiwork. He said, this isn't good. And he, go, he went on to say, it's not good that man should be alone. So he says, what's not good about this is it's by himself. Now I submit to you this, maybe you've never thought about this. The reason it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, probably number one is we men tend to be knuckleheads anyway and we need somebody around us keeping us from being knuckleheads. That would have been, yeah. Good. So he probably just needed companionship and stuff. But the second thing is this, that God had given him a job description and half of that job description was to be fruitful and Adam could not be fruitful in himself. He needed help to fulfill his God-given destiny and purpose. He could not do it alone, so he needed help. And God, so God, the word says that God gave him, listen, we all get this wrong. Please listen to me. This is a pet peeve. God didn't give him a help meet. He gave him a help that was meet. Meet means um, uh, like a compatible. So he gave him a help. And if I have my English right, I think help is the noun. And meet would be the adjective describing you English teachers, am I, am I right there? So meet is a descriptive, a descriptive word. So it's a helper that was actually compatible with him. So, so God gave Adam Eve because he couldn't fulfill his God-given uh, destiny. He couldn't do his job description by himself. So I submit to you that there's something powerful that has happened so far. First of all, God created man. And in the creation of man, there was the establishment of the vertical relationship. God created man so that he could love us, so that he could have fellowship. You and I were born to be in fellowship with God. That's the reason he created us. But secondly... He, he created a, another human to be alongside of us so that the horizontal relationship could, could be met there and could be created. Because we need one another, church. We need one another. We were never created to do it alone. Now, I'm preaching to myself because I'm the one who has a tendency to be alone. Like the, the, the series Alone, I love it. I sit there the whole time like, I could do that. I could do that. I could do that. I don't know about you guys, but I tend to be that way. So I'm really preaching it myself right now. But we were never intended to do this life alone because we need one another. But the problem is God created this woman who was very much compatible with him. But there's something important to recognize. She was compatible, but she was different. She was different from him. 
And you know, I submit to you that in our human relationships, it's our differences that make us productive. I say it this way. It's the biological difference between a man and a woman that makes them productive. So that husband plus wife could equal child. Synergy. One plus one equals three. It's synergy. Right? And so God created them to be compatible and work together, but they were different. And one of the greatest challenges, as much as we need one another, it is so difficult to deal with the differences in people. I mean, I was so attracted to Lori. I mean, our differences made, made us move together and were so attractive. And then we got married and a little while later I found out she's just weird. She's weird because she's not like me and I am the epicenter of, of normal. The whole world ought to function like Jody and think like Jody and see the world like Jody. And those of you who don't, you're just weird. You're not weird. You're, the differences make us productive. And so God called us to not only have the vertical relationship, but the horizontal relationship as well. But it's, there's challenges involved. And as we go through this, this series, we're going to talk about the different relationships. And there, there's always challenges. It's hard to see the value in someone who's different from you. But believe me, it's there. So there's our thoughts that away. So now we have God, we have Adam, and we have Eve. But suddenly when we get into Genesis chapter 3, we run into the fourth character in this story. And it begins this way in Genesis 3, chapter 1. It's, it, it talks about the serpent. And we know that the serpent is really the devil or Lucifer, Satan, whatever you want to call him. And that, that Satan comes on the picture. And it says of the serpent that of all the animals on the planet so far, he was the most shrewd. In the King James, it uses the word shrewd to describe how the devil, how the serpent operated. Now, I was trying to think of some synonyms to the word shrewd. And I came up with things like, uh, like maybe cunning or conniving or crafty. Those are the three C's of the serpent. That's a series right there. Post or trade market. I'm going to write a book called The Three C's of the Serpent. But my favorite synonym and the one I'm going to use for the remainder of this message is, is the term sneaky. In fact, I think from now on, I'm just going to call him sneaky. So sneaky is the fourth character in this story. And what we see is God created man. So there's a vertical relationship. Um, yeah, there's a vertical relationship. And then God created woman. So there's the horizontal relationship. And then old sneaky shows up on the, on the scene. And, and the enemy says to the woman, so picture this, the, the, the serpent is there, the woman is there. And we know if we read scripture, not only was the woman there, but Adam was there as well. Now we didn't hear much from him. It's kind of like in church sometime. Both the husband and the wife there, but all we hear from is the wife. So here we go. Serpent, Eve, Adam. And, and the serpent says to, um, says to Eve, he said, now, is it true that God said to you that you can't eat from any of, listen to the question now. You can read this in Genesis chapter three. 
He says, is it true that God said that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Now, I believe that old Sneaky knew that what he was asking her, he knew the answer to. But he asked her this question, is it true that God said you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? And so Eve answers him and there's, there's three parts to, to her answer and she got two of those parts right and one of them wrong. But here's what she says. Now we know what, what her answer was word from word, but we can't see her attitude, but I like to use my imagination. So I think he says, hey, it, it, is it true that God said you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? And she went, <laughs> you silly serpent. God didn't say that we could eat, that we couldn't eat from all the trees. We can eat from all the trees in the garden. That's right. She said, there's only one tree we can't eat of, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the second part of the question. She got that right. But then she gave, she gave a third part that wasn't right. She went on to say, and we can't even touch it. Now, God had never said anything about them not touching the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, they were the gardeners. Their job was to dress and keep the gardener, the garden. So I submit to you, they had to touch it. Right? And so the devil, old sneaky, asked her this question. And I believe what he was doing, he was probing for opportunity. And what he found in this questioning is that maybe there was a breakdown in her vertical relationship. She didn't know what God had said. She didn't know what God had truly said. And, but then if you look, what you realize is that Eve was not there when God said it. She wasn't even on the planet when he gave the command. So actually it was the job of her husband, Adam, who was there, to relay the information from God to his wife. So we see a breakdown. She didn't know what God had said. And then we see a breakdown horizontally. And in that, the enemy found an opportunity. He goes and begins to accuse God to Eve. He says, oh man, God has fooled you. This is the Jody version. He says, oh, God has fooled you. He told you to not eat of it because he knows the day that you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and you'll be like God. When your eyes are open, you won't need God. You can be your own God. And that's been the downfall of us all, church. And so she partakes of the fruit. And then the Bible says that she hands it to her husband who apparently, again, the whole time was sitting there silent. She hands it to him and he partakes of the fruit. And as soon as they partake of the fruit, half of what Sneaky said happened. Their eyes were opened, but they, their eyes weren't open to see that they were godlike. Their eyes were opened and they saw their own condition and shame entered in. They saw their nakedness. And immediately, immediately what they did was they found ways to cover themselves. The Bible says that they actually used fig leaves, which of all the materials in the world to build clothing with, wrong decision. You talk about the most uncomfortable pair of underwear you've ever put on. 
fig leaves and they covered themselves. But also I submit to you that every one of us still fight that same tendency is to cover ourselves. And we cover ourselves with various things. I'm insecure, so I cover myself with pride. Tell you how great I am. I cover myself with successes. I try to, try to show you my achievements, my accolades, anything I can to cover myself. You know that if, if you look into Bible symbolism, what you'll find is, is the fig tree in the Bible actually symbolizes Israel and the church. And so when I read that, you know what I really think is happening here? They cover themselves with church to hide who they really are with, with religious activities. And so there they are covered. And what you find is when, when sin came, when disobedience came, the vertical relationship was broken and we also know that when sin came, the horizontal relationship was broken because it, it was one generation later, the children of Adam and Eve are killing themselves, killing each other. The brothers killing each other. So we see the breakdown of the horizontal relationship, the breakdown of the vertical relationship as soon as this thing begins to happen. Now, you know, Something you need to know about old Sneaky, and I've said this before, but this is a tremendous revelation to me, and I'd like to share it with you. Hopefully, it's revelation to you. You know, several years back, I believe the Lord spoke this to me, that the enemy's job is to pervert things. The word pervert is so powerful. And last time I, I spoke on this, I, I said this, but for those of you who weren't here, I'm not using the word pervert in its noun form. Because a lot of times we use that. This is like an English lesson today. We use the word pervert in its noun form. In other words, calling each other. And especially down south, you pervert. We tend to stretch it out, put that long slang on it. And it becomes an indictment against each other. You pervert. That's not what I'm talking about. Listen, the world has heard the church call them perverts long enough. We don't need to do any more of that. So this isn't us accusing anybody of anything. So I'm not using it in its noun form. I'm using it in its verb form. And the enemy, what the enemy wants to do is pervert. Shorter. He wants to pervert. What does he want to pervert? Listen, Whatever God has established, God established it because it brought life. And the enemy would love nothing more than to take what God designed and to flip it. The word pervert means to take something from its original purpose and turn it towards something else. I submit to you that I believe the real definition of pervert is to flip it 180 degrees. In other words, if something was created uh, in a certain way and was, was meant to accomplish certain things, the enemy wants to pervert it so that it's flipped completely 180 degrees and instead of producing life, it would produce death. And so the old sneaky, he's sneaky. And what he wants to do is pervert the things of God. Listen, church, old sneaky, the devil is at war against God, but the enemy cannot hurt God. So what he's chosen to do is hurt the object of God's affection and that's us. 
if he can trick us, fool us, pervert things in our mind, pervert the way God set things up and ordained things and what they would produce, if he, could, if he can pervert that in us, then he can affect God by affecting what God loves. So we have this enemy who's there. He shows up in the garden and he twists things and he accomplishes what he was set out, setting out to accomplish. He broke down relationships. He broke down, he, he put a separation in between God and his creation. Man was expelled from the garden and the relationship between God and man was broken. Horizontal relationships broken. Death came. Dysfunction came into families. We see it. We see it all through the Bible. So this is, this was the effect of what God, of what the uh, what Vodosniki was was able to do with God's creation. But I want to ask you a question. If you read this story, you look at all that happened. There's a lot of things that happened there. I want to ask you a question to think about. Let me ask you this, when, when the serpent was talking with, with Adam and Eve, when he was perverting and when he was twisting and he was tempting Adam and Eve, where was God? You ever thought of that? Where was God in that moment? I don't think he was standing right there because I, I don't think Eve would have quite done what she did had God been standing there. But I ask that because it, this did not happen without God's knowledge. God knew and saw exactly what his whole plan was getting twisted and perverted and distorted right before his eyes, right after it all happened, right after this thing was launched, it's falling apart and God was right there looking at it. Do you agree with that? So some of you may be sitting here saying, well, man, isn't that cruel? Wouldn't it be cruel of God to put all this into place and then to see it breaking down and for him to just stand there without getting involved? Some of us have looked at that and said, that's a cruel God. But I would say to you, his doing nothing at that moment was not an act of cruelty. It was an act of love. Because you can't have love without free will. You can't have love without choice. And when, I, when it came time for me to choose a wife, I didn't, I didn't want a woman who had no choice except to love me. I wanted one that chose to love me. With my children, I don't want my children to have to love me. I want them to choose to love me, right? And so there can't be love without free will. So I submit to you that God was sitting there. He was sitting there at that moment with his heart breaking because he had given man free will because he wanted us to love him of our own choice. And instead of choosing to love him, we chose to disobey him. And I submit to you in that moment, the heart of the father was broken as he watched the vertical relationship that he had established be severed. As he watched the horizontal relationships that he had set up being torn apart, the heart of the father was broken. And that seems like a dark day. And I don't know if I, if I think too much about that, I, I get a little depressed, but here's what I want you to know. That even in that moment, as his heart was breaking, what he knew was that there was already a plan B in motion. 
Because the book of Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 says that of Jesus, that he was the lamb of God slain from the foundations of the earth. The same day that God was creating earth, he was setting in place a savior who would die for us. There was a sacrificial uh, a sacrificial uh, sacrifice there, a, a savior set aside on the day that the earth was created, there was a plan B. So he sat there in love, not forcing our free will, but watching us choose wrongly all, all the while knowing there's gonna be a way. This thing's gonna be restored. The vertical relationship is once again gonna be possible. And as I was thinking about this, it, it brought me to the story of, of Abraham and Isaac. Now, I love biblical symbology, uh, you know, symbolism. And so I just want to walk you through this story and, I, and, and let you see the symbolism. Now, it kind of bounces back and forth, so you, you're going to have to follow me on this. But here's what I see. Remember that in Genesis, the 12th chapter, we see that God made a covenant with a man named Abram. And and what God's plan was is I'm going to take this man, Abram, and through this man, Abram, there's going to be a, there's going to be a, a, a crowd of people, a nation of people with whom I can have a relationship. It's the same way, it's the same approach God took in the garden that I'm gonna create Adam and through Adam, there's going to be a group of people, a nation of people in relationship with me. I want people to love and I want people who love me and I'm gonna use Adam to produce that. But Adam missed it. And so here's God trying again with Abraham. He says, I'm gonna use Abraham. And through Abraham, there's gonna be a nation of people who'll be in relationship with me. So in this picture, God, Abraham is like God. Isaac would be like us. And so sooner or later, we, we see that, that Isaac is born. And it looks like this thing's on the right track, that, that the father, through his son, there's going to be a, 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 a group of people produced to be in relationship with him. But then we see later on that, that God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. So fast forward with me. I believe this is in Genesis chapter 22. We see that Abraham brings Isaac. And what the Bible says is that Abraham and Isaac and a couple of servants are going to this mountain. And Abraham knows that what he's going to do is sacrifice his son there. And so they all travel together. When they get to the bottom of the mountain, the servants are left behind. And only Abraham and Isaac go up the mountain. Now, Abraham has with him at that moment all the resources to make the sacrifice except for the sacrificial animal. The lamb is missing. It's just Isaac and him, but the knife's there, the wood's there, everything that's needed. And the Bible says that, that Abraham took the wood and put it on his son. So Isaac is the one carrying the wood up the mountain to the place where he would die. Listen to the, are you catching on to the biblical symbolism? In the same way that a few thousand years later, God would put the wood of the cross on the shoulders of his son who would climb up Golgotha carrying the wood that would be his demise. Abraham and Isaac with Isaac carrying the wood up the mountain they go. Bible says when they get up to the top there, that Abraham takes the, the wood and builds an altar and he 
he binds his son and puts him on the wood. And that's a picture of Jesus on the cross bound by his own father. You say, Jody, the Romans did it or the Jews did it. Listen, human, human hands did not do that. It was God binding his own son there on the wood. So in that moment, we see Abraham is a picture of God. Isaac is a picture of Jesus bound there on the wood. And, but then we see as, this, as the knife is lifted and God is about to kill his son. Now, let's flip the symbolism a little bit. Now, let's see it this way. Abraham is God. It's you and I. It's, it's, it's humankind that God had created to be in fellowship with him. We are the one on the altar. We are the one who deserve the knife to come down. We are the one to deserve death because of our sinfulness, because we have disobeyed. We deserve it. And so here's God. Abraham, his heart is breaking as the knife is about to come down on his son. And here's us knowing that we deserve death. But in that moment, in that moment, it, out, of the peripheral, out of our peripheral vision, a, a, a ram was seen caught in the thicket. And all of a sudden, the one on the wood was unbound. The one, the son... The son was set free because there was a substitutionary sacrifice. There was a ram caught in the thicket. So the son gets set free because something's going to die in its place. And church, that's a picture of me and you. God who loved us, who, who created us to be in fellowship with him, but our sin had separated us. We deserved death. We deserved it. But all of a sudden, because of a substitutionary sacrifice, you and I are set free. We're set free from our bondage. We're released from sin because something was going to die in our place. It's so beautiful. So God in the garden, watching, watching the enemy trick and deceive and destroy, knowing though there's a plan. There's a plan for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you're feeling this like I'm feeling this, can we just take a minute and just say, thank you, Lord. Come on, just, just thank the Father for giving his son. Thank you, Lord. Thank Jesus for the sacrifice that he's given. Oh, Lord. Come on, church, engage with this. Oh, Lord, we thank you. Father, we deserve death. We deserve separation. But because of your son, Jesus, we can be unbound, set free, and experience eternal life. We're so grateful, Lord. Thank you. So in this series, we're going to talk about both vertical and horizontal relationships. But I couldn't start this series in any other way than this way. I want to say this to you today. If you don't get the vertical relationship right then everything else, nothing else matters. And what I've shared with you here today is a picture of the gospel. The fact that it wasn't just Adam and Eve who have fallen, it's each one of us. We're born and conceived in sin. We're children of Adam. So we begin, we begin this journey behind the eight ball because we are the seed of Adam. But then also we've done things in our life 
sinful, disobedient things that have separated us from God. And it's broken God's heart because his desire was to walk in perfect fellowship with you. But we blew it. We've given in to the enemy. We've let him distort and twist and we've let him, let him bring death. And that's a sad story, but thank God for Jesus. Through the blood, through the sacrificial lamb that died in my place, I can once again have a relationship with my father. Would you stand up with me, please?